I need some uh, ushers, some el- uh, deacons. Pass this stuff out. Seriously. Got some folks. <clears throat> this um, was going to be an outline of today's sermon, but it's probably going to be more of a study guide. <laughs> uh, because things changed last night. Let me uh, pull this out of here. Set that there. While they're passing that out, I'll tell you just a little bit before we go in prayer and start. So, you know, Mike and Danny, they've gone to seminary and they've got master's degrees and learned how to preach and all about the Greek and the Latin. My dad was a preacher, but he didn't teach me anything about the Greek and Latin, even though he was a Greek-Latin scholar. And so when the ruling elders get up to do this kind of thing, it's kind of we're out of our element. Uh, and um, so it's a lot of, really is a lot of effort, a lot of work. I know John has done has always done a great job, and, and Chilson and Clark. And, and you try to make it sort of personal, and you also want to make it meaningful. And so I worked, and I and I and I was encouraged by Mike in the past, and and uh, 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 Sandy Curnow to to kind of write out your sermon, and to, so that you 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 know you got something to go by. That's good advice. Uh, when I, I as you, most of you know, I'm a superior court judge, and most of the time when I'm talking to a jury, it's all written out, and I'm reading from basically a script because it's about what the law is that they have to apply to a given case, and um, so that, that's a smart thing. So last night, when I'm all done, I'm coming home, and I'm getting ready for bed, and I'm telling Chilson, it was, felt like it was the Holy Spirit saying, Dan, you can change this all up. And then my, I tell my wife, she said, what, what's wrong? Because I was leaning against the door thinking, and I told her what, what I was thinking. She said, well, I told you you needed to do that. <laughs> and she was right, but I didn't think. She said, my wife told me, Cindy said, you know, you really ought to include some of your own experiences as a lawyer, as a judge. And I often do, but this one, this time it wasn't there, and so I wasn't going to do that. And then all of a sudden, something hit me that had happened twice in the last three weeks. And I said, you know, this really applies to, um, to what the, the, the sermon is or what the, the passages are, which has to do with the words of Jesus. And so I thought, man, I'm not going to have time to write this all out. So y'all just bear with me. <clears throat> so we're going to go off script a little bit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, may these words of yours, the words of eternal life, your word, be spoken and heard rightly and with humble hearts. And since you say if two or three are gathered in your name, you're present also. May this time together in your presence impart to us living water. May you give your servant the word that you would have spoken to be a blessing to your sheep. And may we love you, Jesus, more and more, and more. And show that by that love, by living in obedience to you, that we are yours, our Father and our Savior. Amen. So, the intent is 
And I mean, it still is, the sermon intent is still the same. It's just, I'm switching things up. So, the, the hymns we sang are really important. And the words Chilson spoke are really important. We're going to, John 3 is, is critical. And the, and the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus is critical to understanding the guts of what I was going to preach to you and I'm still going to touch on. <clears throat> and that's about the love of Jesus. The, the, the two hymns that, 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 that we sang, both of them, one Fanny Crosby and the other Isaac Watts, talked about you know, praising God, Fanny Crosby, but it's, but it's because of great love that, that God shows us that we want to praise him. And, and the, the, uh, When I Survey the Wonders Cross talks about the amazing love of God. And so that's, that is the key takeaway. If you don't think about anything else, you go home right now, just think about how much God loves you and loves us all. So uh, the sermon, if you see the, the, the stuff that I've handed out, is about the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason is, I wanted to, I've been in the last few years, well, probably a year and a half anyway, two years, been, it's been on my mind, and when I read the Bible, I don't read as much as I should, but focusing on, I focus on the words of Jesus Christ. Now, the whole Bible is, is God's word. We know that. The, um, today, the, the um, bulletin, I'm not sure where I put it, has the language on it, you know, about John 1.1, 1, 1, but the word was with, with God in the beginning, and the word was, was God. If you go to John 1.14, it, it points out that that word is Jesus Christ. And so the whole Bible is, is uh, in, in essence, Jesus' words. But I've been led to kind of focus on the words of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, and what he spoke 2,000 years ago. A lot of people in our culture think of, of uh, Jesus as a good guy, a good man, uh, somebody worth paying attention to. They may not like what we do here. They may not like churches or Christian churches. They may not like the Bible. And, but they think Jesus is a pretty good guy. And, but if you look at what Jesus says and who he says he is, I'm sure you've heard this statement before, either he's crazy or he's a liar. Unless he's unless if he's telling the truth, then he identifies himself as the Son of God. He's not just a good teacher, I guess is what I'm getting at. He's not just a good guy. He would never say that. So when Jesus started his ministry, get away from this thing here. When Jesus started his ministry, he heads up. In chapter 4 of Matthew, what we're going to talk about, I'm, and, and uh, Lee Irwin would often tell me when I preached in the past, Dan, what was that verse you were talking about? So that's part of the reason I gave you the, the, out, the outline. Some of there's verse references, but we're going to look at, in a, in a, in a broad picture, chapter 4 of Matthew, 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, and then chapter 8 is when he comes down off of the mountain. So, you know, we're not going to read all that, obviously. Um, 
You know, I'd like to, Mike. <laughs> when I'm in court, I'm going to digress. I can, I can go as long as I want, <laughs> you know? And I, but I feel these, uh, these earthly constraints. Um, so we're not going to do all that. But we're going to touch on a lot of it. And um, so Jesus went what I call the, um, and I read one place, they called it the Northern Israel Tour. This is when Jesus kind of started his ministry. He's about 30 years old, 31, 32, 33. And he's going throughout the towns of the, what were occupied by the Roman Empire time. It was a peaceful time, the Pax Romana. And he's going to Capernaum, and he's going north into Galilee. And he's going to the synagogues, and he's, and he's talking to people. He's preaching to people. He's telling them the good news about how much God loves them. And he, um, he also is healing people. And so the way I looked at this, getting ready for the Sermon on the Mount, is that, that Jesus is getting people to trust him and to trust God. All right? And he's getting them to understand, like he said with Nicodemus, the importance of having faith in God, often despite our outward, outward circumstances. So let me, let me go real quick. And I want to just, this was the end of my sermon. And I'm going to go bring it, and I'm going to put this first. I'm going to reemphasize something that uh, Nicodemus said no one this is verse 13 uh, John three thirteen. this is Jesus's words no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the son of man Jesus of course is speaking about himself verse 14 just as Moses was lifted up uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Moses, if you recall, lifted up, it's, if you, Howard, the medical symbol, right? You hold that, it's that staff with the snake on it, right? That's a sign of healing, because in the Old Testament, Moses held that staff up with the snake, snake on it, and anybody that just looked at it, was healed, right? And so that's, that's the reference Jesus is making. But he's also making the reference of his future at this point, because it's the beginning of his ministry, this future dying on the cross, lifted up on the cross, and that being the symbol of we look to him and we're healed spiritually from our, our, our sin and our shortcomings, our separation from God. So verse 16, Jesus we all we know this verse, three John three 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 sixteen, but look at the context of it. For God so loved the world, he's talking to Nicodemus. The, Nicodemus, by the way, is a very learned he's called the teacher, Israel's teacher. So this is one of the most astute theologians of Jesus' day. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already 
because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Critical, critical, critical. This conversation with Nicodemus, by, by all accounts, happened before the Sermon on the Mount, during Jesus' tour in these synagogues and in, in these, these areas around the Sea of Galilee. So, people are coming from Syria, from Decapolis, of the, you know, the other side of the Jordan. They're coming from larger areas to see Jesus because, you know, selfishly, you know, they've got, people got physical illness, mental illness. Jesus is healing it all. So they're all coming to him, and he's doing this, this preaching. And so that is what kind of sets the stage for, the, for his Sermon on the Mount. And so, let me get this straight here. So, Jesus' words, keep in mind. Let me ask you this. How many times have you all thought, like I've thought, we've got this problem? And we think, you know, if Jesus was just here, I wonder what he'd tell me. I mean, I've thought that... Jesus, if you were right here, give me a little bit of advice. And the other day, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, a good Christian fellow, and he said, you know, isn't isn't it interesting how God's word is eternal and it's applicable to the folks back then and today and tomorrow. So when, when the realization is that these words that we look at Today and maybe throughout the week when you're looking at God's word. By the way, you can read the whole Sermon on the Mount in about 15 minutes. You can read those, you know, maybe less than that, maybe 10. So chapters 5, 6, and 7, you, you can read that. And I'm going to expect you all to read that. Uh, I often, I'll go back to being judge again. I often, when I'm sentencing somebody, I say, you know, you're, you're seeing a bad day, aren't you? And he said, yeah. And I'll tell him, well, I'll tell you what. This can be a good day if you change your ways, right? And if you take advantage of what the Department of Adult Corrections, Art Dunn, you know, used to teach some of these guys. You know, take advantage of some of the stuff. This can be a good day. Um, So, you know, I often tell them, I try to encourage them and say, take advantage of it. Look at this a little differently. So anyway, Jesus' words here that we're going to look at have applicability in our lives today, not just back then. So part of what we're going to do is look at this from a, um, um, the way I, way I analogize. One of my favorite places to go around here is Grand, Grand, Grandfather Mountain. I've been going up there since I was a kid before I lived here. I visit my relatives, and we go up to the first peak. That's where everybody goes. You cross that not-so-swinging bridge anymore, and you, and you go, over, go over to the first peak. And then you can go up to McRae Peak, which fewer people go, go to, but it's really cool. But, and you can go up to Callaway Peak, but it's not great, necessarily great views, but the best views on Grandfather Mountain, in my view, is Attic Window. Very few people go up there because it's hard to get to. You've got to climb up these ladders, you know, and you go down 300 feet down this way and that way. But once you're up there, you're looking out over Table Rock and the Lost Cove and Wilderness and the, I mean, in Wilson Gorge, and you, take, you know, the, the whole nine yards. And you look down on McCrave Peak, and you look down on the first peak where the swing bridge is. 
And that's kind of what we're doing here. I'm going to just do a little bit of an overview and maybe hit on a few nuggets, a few little flowers along the way, looking out for some roots and maybe snakes. So this is what's going on before Jesus has a sermon. All these people are following him. He goes up to this mountain that they call the Mount of Beatitudes today where they think it happened, and it overlooks this beautiful lake, the Sea of Galilee, which is has a circumference of about 33 miles. And I grew up right next to, used to work on a lake up in western New York called Canandaigua Lake. It's got very similar circumference. It's just longer and narrower. But I can't tell you how beautiful it is. This would, this would have been a beautiful spot. It would have been like sitting up on Roan Mountain or on one of the humps with a big bald area and all the people sitting down. And I'd, I'd hope to kind of sit down here with you and just talk to you, but it's not going to work that way, right? So... This is, this is a beautiful setting. And then Jesus starts talking to these people who he has been preparing all along, talking about the love of God and about the need to believe in him and the need to have faith in him. And, and he, he, he starts talking to this large crowd, and he sits, sits down. Now, one last sort of set-the-stage thing that my wife, going back to my wife and the Holy Spirit, that caused this whole thing to kind of turn around. Have any of you heard of sovereign citizens? Anybody? Moorish sovereign citizens, all right, which are sort of the Islam version of sovereign citizens. I heard about sovereign citizens a number of years ago. Sovereign citizens are a group of people. They've been around for a little while, but they're a little more prevalent. You used to see them in Charlotte more, but now we're seeing them out here. They are people who honestly don't believe that either the state government or the federal government has any real authority over them. They, they believe in some old common law uh, uh, ideas of law. They don't believe in taxation law. And, and they just don't, they don't, they don't, they don't believe in the court system. They don't believe in the, what the judge says is the real deal. So I've heard stories about this, and I've heard other judges talk about it. You know, I had this sovereign citizen come in my courtroom, and he gave me a false name. Right? He wouldn't talk to me. I didn't have any. I, didn't, I never experienced that. So the way superior court works is if a district court judge imposes a, a punishment on for someone in, in contempt of court, meaning they they violate the court rules, they don't give the court respect, they disrupt the court and the person is held in contempt, contempt is, a, is a, actually a criminal statute. You can get fined up to $500 and put in jail for 30 days. Well, one of my friends, a district court judge, about three weeks ago had this uh, sovereign citizen over in Caldwell County who would not approach. He had to come up to, to speak to the judge, and he, he wouldn't come up. He said, I'll just stay back there, and I'll talk to you back here. And Judge Smith said, no, you need to come up. He wouldn't do it. He disrupted the courtroom. Judge Smith held him in contempt. He had a little hearing, held him in contempt for seven days. Now, so the appeal, he wanted to appeal. He gets to jail, and he wants to appeal that ruling. His appeal comes to a superior court judge. I happen to be holding court, so his appeal comes to me. So I'm thinking, oh, boy, you know. I've heard the, 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 the bailiffs uh, telling me all about how this, this guy's giving him all kind of trouble. He gets in front of me. They bring him in in cuffs. This is two or three days later. He gets in front of me, and maybe two days later. And I'm supposed to, you know, set bond for him to give him a chance to get out so he can appeal his case. And 
I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have all, the, all kind of problems with him. He was the nicest guy. After he'd been in jail for a little while, he was the nicest fella. He did everything I asked him. I gave him a, you know. And, on, and by the way, he was in court for a U-turn violation. I'm serious. He, was a, he had a minor traffic violation. He did not believe that a trooper could give him that ticket. That's a sovereign citizen. Okay. So that was my first story. The second is I'm in Charlotte uh, the week before last, and um, it was a difficult week. I'll tell you, it was a difficult week. But I had there was a there was a lawyer who said, Judge, I've got a client. I'm going to have to ask for a withdrawal uh, to a motion to withdraw. I want to get out of the case because my client won't cooperate with me. And he comes up. I said, Can I approach? So he comes up, and the DA comes up. And said. Judge, my client's a sovereign citizen, a more sovereign citizen. And I'm, and I'm thinking, okay. You know. So another one. Now, I've been doing this. I've been doing this job for almost you know, eight and a half years at this, this point. I've never had this happen, so twice in a row. So it's a lady. We're in Charlotte, big courtroom. And when a lawyer wants to withdraw... You know, you got to ask the defendant, is it okay with you? You got to talk to the defendant because you you want the defendant to have representation in the underlying crime. They might be innocent. The case hasn't been heard yet. And so as a judge, you want to make sure that for their good that they understand that they have the right to an attorney and they ought to cooperate with the attorney. I mean, I'm trying to help these people and this person. So I asked the lady, I said, so the man is at the table right over here and the lady's back here and I asked this lady I said ma'am will you step up here she won't move I said will you tell me your name she says I don't understand you so it goes downhill from there and long story short I'm trying to help this lady and I'm just asking her to follow some simple rules don't disrupt the court just answer my simple questions it's easy I'm not asking her to go run a mile, you know, or anything crazy, do 100 push-ups. And she won't do it. What happens? I've got to hold her in contempt. I have a little hearing. I hold her in contempt. And then I put her in jail. The, uh, the, uh, the, the sergeant comes back later and says, Judge, she, uh, she's, she's changing her mind a little bit. She wants to cooperate. I said, well, her lawyer left already. That was 30 minutes ago. I said, you can get her lawyer. We'll get her back in here, and we'll straighten this out. All right, so how does that apply to what we're dealing with? All right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at this real quick. Jesus sits down on the mountainside and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, as Warren Wearsby talks about, is this heavenly happiness. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you when you get persecuted for my name's sake. All of these things, Jesus talks about how good things are going to happen. And he's going to make things right. And don't look at those outward appearances. But Jesus also, keep in mind, he's, he's, he's already talked to these people about having faith. They're, they believe him. He can heal diseases. He says, you know, this is an evil world. 
And a lot of times good in an evil world doesn't get rewarded. But you will be rewarded by God in his timing. He goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, you're the salt, you're light, you're light in the world. And um, if, if you're in a dark place and somebody's got a big light, right, like that, you're the one that's, you know, you're important, right? So you all have some light, Jesus is saying, and you're important. Think about that a little bit. But if you don't use your light, if you put your light in your pocket, doesn't do a lot of doesn't do a lot of good, and you're not helping God's kingdom. He goes on to talk about um, his Jesus's mission as well as yours. Let's look at uh, verses five seventeen. Matthew five seventeen, and you don't have to you don't have to look at your Bibles. Just just listen. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not at the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The law is, you know, the Ten Commandments and all the, the, the do's and don'ts that, are in, that we learned in the Old Testament that the Pharisees had transformed into like 600 different rules. Jesus says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So now he's explaining not only his mission, which is to fulfill the law, but he talks about our mission as well. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, your goodness, your rightness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, my goodness. How are we going to do that, right? So how do we please please God? What's the standard? Then Jesus talks about murder. And so pay attention to this. So when Jesus talks about murder in verse 21 and 22, and you can look at this more closely later, he then compares when we get angry and we call somebody names. We use words very, very um, hurtfully, and he says, that's the same as murder. But look what he does next. He, and, he, and I'm going to skip some verses. We go to verse 27, 527. He talks about adultery, you know, being faithful in your, in your marriage a relationship. He says, when you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adult, adultery. So what's he doing? He's going from not only got to keep these actions, these ten, ten, ten commandments, but you can't, you can't say things without violating the ten, ten commandments. And now he goes to, you can't think things wrongly without violating the ten commandments. You, you get that? Jesus is making this very difficult, if not impossible, for us to do. He goes on and he talks about doing some other really impossible type stuff. He talks about when somebody hurts you, you should turn the other cheek. When they take one of your possessions, you should give them two of your uh, possessions. If they force you to do some work, do twice as much work. He tells his audience on that, that mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
God, your Father in heaven, causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And the tax collectors were people that were robbing folks at that time. Um, And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing any more than others? Even the pagans, in other words, the unbelievers, do that. Then Jesus says this. Jesus says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so we'll pause right here. You know we can't do that, right? He, the, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you look at your notes, he goes about some, instead of things to do, he talks about things that you can do that look to be good, like giving to folks, but you're doing it in a public way, in a way that, you know, you're, it's pride, prideful way. So even good can be wrong. He goes on to talk about things that you ought to do in secret and with humility, including prayer. And that's where we, he talks about the Lord's Prayer. But I'm going to comment quickly about the Lord's Prayer and uh, uh, Matthew six fourteen. And he 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 says this: for if you forgive other people. When they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive your, your, your sins. So one thing I glean from that is there's a presupposition there. What, what do you think it is? We're all, we all sin. Or we sin against others. Or others have sinned against us. Right? So that's why we need to seek forgiveness, one, from God, but also from other people. And we need to treat each other, as Jesus is going to say later, like we want to be treated. So I'm going to go on. We, the end, as we get towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks more and more about faith, belief, and trust in, in God and, and, and in him. So he, he first mentions this, if you look in uh, uh, Matthew 6, 25 to 32, is all about don't worry. Don't worry about the clothes you're going to get, what you're going to eat. God loves you. He's going to take care of you. He loves you more than the flowers of the field, who, who, who looks more beautiful than anything Solomon and all his wealth could have. He says in verse 30, If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and, and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Get this, God wants us to have faith in him. That's what Jesus is saying. And he says, how do we live? So in verse 35, you know, you can ask this question. How are we supposed to live with these? We, got the, we, how do we, we can't keep these commandments. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well, meaning all your other needs will be met. He goes on and he, in verse 7, I mean chapter 7, he talks about um, things like um, judging others. But you need to look at yourself before you make judgment of others. You need to kind of look at yourself carefully. What, what are your weaknesses and sins and limitations? He reiterates about asking. Out of, again, I would say it's out of faith. God, asking, knocking, seeking God for things that, that, that you need. And he compares it to a daddy, earthly daddy, giving his children good gifts. He, he says... 
If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So then Jesus summarizes the Sermon on the Mount. And again, I hope you go home and look at this. I encourage you to do this. He summarizes in verse 712 uh, in our relationships to other people. Christians in particular, but other people, even non-Christians. So in everything, do unto others as you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And then in verse 13, I contend this has to do more with God. He says, you enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so... The, the, the idea is, if you care about Jesus, you care about God, you care about what you're doing in this life, why we're here, why are we here, then you want to seek after God. You want to look after that narrow path. You want to go up to the, the um, Grandfather Mountain Trail and not just go to the Swinging Bridge. Everybody can drive up there on that asphalt road but you want to get off that and get on the trail and you want to climb up the ladders you want to go up the attic window and that's what you want to do with jesus you want to you want to you want to you want to go after jesus it's hard but it's not that hard jesus says in matthew 11 28 to 30 i believe it is you know i'm calling all you who are laden down with the cares of this world my my burden's light my yoke's easy you know i care about you i love you and come after me it's 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 like me as a judge asking that sovereign citizen who doesn't believe i have authority to put that person in jail or do anything it's it's like i'm asking that person to do something simple tell me your name and you don't do the simple things it can get you in trouble and all Jesus is saying is, this is simple. Just believe in me. Trust in me. It's not hard. I'm not asking you to, like Naaman in the Old Testament, not asking you to go do something difficult. So the conclusion is this. Jesus says this. 724. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. If you all in the construction business like Clark Irwin. Uh, you know, you want to have a solid foundation for your building. Jesus says, you put my words into practice. It's like a man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. And yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down. The streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. He was, Jesus was talking about his experience because he had experience from the beginning of time with God the Father. Professor Sinclair Ferguson in 1986, wrote this. 
about the Sermon on the Mount. He, meaning Jesus, let the law out of the cage in which the Pharisees had imprisoned it, allowing it to pounce on our secret thoughts and motives and to tear to pieces our bland assumption that we are able to keep it, the law, in our own strength. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran theologian uh, out of Germany, died in a concentration camp just, just before the Allies freed his, uh, the camp he was in, says this. What Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourself should be signs of the coming kingdom of God and signs that, that something has already happened. And then I'm going to paraphrase an interesting article. I've never heard of this group before, but there's a, a group of, of Christian ministries that, that, that work to evangelize Israel. And it's called the Fellowship of Israeli-Related Ministries, or FIRM. And there's a staff article that I ran across that says this. Jesus, this is in, re, re, reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus points out our weaknesses, our severe limitations, and, our, and the ultimate impossibility of keeping the law by our own will and strength. Our only hope is faith in Jesus, Jesus' own fulfillment of the law on our behalf. The end goal is to follow these commandments out of godly love. Jesus said in John 15, 10, If you obey my commands, you will, you will abide in my love. So, Jesus comes down off the mountain. If you remember, I said before, we're talking about, Jesus was talking about faith. He talked to Nicodemus about the need to believe in him. Look what happens in chapter 8 when you get home. In chapter 8, he begins healing people again. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He starts healing people. How does that happen? Well, you've got to believe Jesus has the power to do that, for that to happen. There's got to be faith involved. He, he also talks about the centurion, the Roman, the Roman, not a Jewish guy. This is a Roman soldier in charge of 100 soldiers who has a, a paralyzed servant. He asked Jesus to help him out. Jesus said, do you want me to come to your house? He said, no. He said, I- I'm not worthy uh, for you to come to my house. But he said, I, I tell people what to do. I- they go here and-, and they go. And they go over there and they go. He said, he's implying you can do the same thing. You don't need to come to my house. I trust that you can heal my servant from where you are right there. And Jesus says that he's not seen anybody with greater faith in all of Israel. So you got faith at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. you got the Sermon on the Mount, which talks about the requirements of God, and then you've got faith again. And that's critical. A repentant heart and a humble faith in Jesus, a faith in his great love for each of us, believing he is real, believing he lived perfectly and died, then rose for us, then is paramount to our obtaining uh, life through him obtaining the righteousness and the perfection required to enter the kingdom of heaven. In 1923, Gresham Machen said this, The new law of the Sermon on the Mount in itself can only produce despair. Strange indeed is the complacency with which modern men can say that the golden rule and, and the high ethical principles of Jesus are all they need. In reality, if the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of God are what Jesus declares them to be, we are all undone. 
We have not even attained to the external righteousness of the scribes and and Pharisees. And how shall we attain to that righteousness of the heart which Jesus demands? The Sermon on the Mount, rightly interpreted, then makes man a seeker after some divine means of salvation by which entrance into the kingdom of God can be obtained. Even Moses was too high for us. But before this higher law of Jesus, who shall stand without being condemned? The Sermon on the Mount, like all the rest of the New Testament, really leads a man straight to the foot of the cross. So let's not be sovereign citizens in relationship to God. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord and Savior Jesus, we seek you, we knock on your door, we ask that you look down on those gathered here today or watching on online, that we may be granted a heart, an attitude like yours, a trusting faith in you and in the Father, a heart open to your Holy Spirit, a love of you and of your eternal words. We ask you to give us a desire and ability to love and obey your commandments, to act like you acted and to act like you taught us to act to think like you taught us to think. We ask these things because you called us who are weary and loaded down with the burdens of the world and because you promised us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that you will give our souls rest. Amen.